everybody and welcome to another edition of the In My Life podcast. This week we're going to centre totally on the 90s. Um, as I say, last week we did the music, so this week it's all about the 90s. Join me as always, uh, sidekick for this one, Andy Wales. Andy, how are you all well? I'm doing very, very well today. Very well indeed. Yeah, and a just a to... step, isn't it really? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I can't think what it might be. No. 4-0. But... Um... <laughs> I, this, as well as me feeling good, I am really looking forward to this because this is uh, a subject that I'm, I enjoy. And not only that, and we've got a, we couldn't have picked a better guest to uh, to help us navigate this one. He's the man that needs no introduction. It's uh, it's Dave Hendrick. Afternoon, gentlemen. How are we? All very good. good. We're All very good. good. Not a bad day to be doing a bit of a podcast. <laughs> the, the mood might have been notably different had things gone differently, but well, there's Jesus still been Christ. no clouds in my sky, but it's particularly nice today. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, listen, as I say, we're, we're going to focus a little bit on the '90s, which was like the, the innovative era, really, for football. It, it changed greatly. I think it was it was the end of that sort of uh, you know the old phase of football, as we would have called it, in the, the beginning of the of the sort of modern era. So, Dave, you know, we've, we've asked you for to bring five things, positive and negative. Um, I doubt very much we'll get through them, but we'll prioritise them. First of all, give us your first positive. First positive is the international tournaments from the 90s. Because I think we saw three very different, but all very entertaining World Cups. Italian 90, often derided by people, but... Some of the defensive and tactical football in that World Cup was phenomenal. Um, obviously, the overall quality and excitement might not have been there, but I enjoyed that World Cup. It's the first World Cup I can really remember, so maybe I remember it through tinted glasses. But I really enjoyed that World Cup, and given it was in Italy and my love of Italian football and the stadiums, the fans, everything that went around it, Ness and Dorma, everything about that World Cup... Right down to what a lot of people have said is the worst World Cup final ever. I think it's, I think it's right up there as one of the best because it had everything you could want: chances, sendings off, questionable penalty, possibly the last time we saw Maradona um, at his peak before kind of everything blew up around him with the, you know, the, the accusations and the, the drug use and the connections to the mafia and whatever else, whatever else Diego was into at the time. Um, but for me, like that was a great World Cup. USA 94 as a spectacle was phenomenal. Um, and again, I thought the quality of football was fantastic. Again, the final, a lot of people have said was boring, but I think it was a tactical, a tactical chess match between two great managers. And then France 98 was just a great World Cup. I don't think anyone disputes that. And then if you look at like the European Championships, 92 quality games and, of course, the great Denmark story, 96 football coming home to England, phenomenal tournament. And, you know, like some of the Copa Americas in that time, they, that great Uruguayan team with Francescoli and Daniel Fonseca winning the Copa America. Like, for me, international tournaments in the 90s, I don't think we've seen anything close to that, that level since then, either in World Cups or the Continental Trophies. 
And you you left out really the emergence of African football there as well, Dave, which came through in those, uh, especially in those. World Absolutely, Cups. Ca- Cameroon in the nineteen ninety World Cup. Like, what a story that was! Beating the defending Roger champions, Mayer. Roger Mayo setting the world alight with with his personality, his ability, and his dancing. Just brilliant, you know. And then obviously ninety four, we saw that fantastic young Nigerian team start to mature, and onwards into into 1998 you know and again like you you read a lot of people who who cover the AFCON they'll tell you that those tournaments in the 90s were fantastic as well because you'd got a really good Cameroon team that developed later in the 90s that's really strong Nigeria team which of course won the Olympics in the 90s as well um just just a great era I I believe for international football and, you know, off the times there as well, Dave, like, like seriously, you know, we started the 90s without internet. We ended up with the internet and things were really never going to be the same uh, in the world. But even like just the world of football changed so much. You know, you talk there about the emergence of African nations, you know, and Asia starting to, starting to come through. Although I think it's a little bit more so now. But I think it, it began to become so global. Um, you know, the outreach, you know, we've seen fan sites, you know, we've worked now for the index, which was a network around mm. the globe. World Football Index, very much the same. People all around the globe who are connected, able to converse about football, do these types of things. The, the 90s just, just, just changed the game entirely. Yeah. But you, you mentioned Asia there and the growth in Asia in the 90s was phenomenal. Um, you think to the likes of Gary Lineker going to play in Japan. Michael Laudrup went and played in Japan in that era. And because of the growth in the 90s, the 2002 World Cup ended up in Japan and South Korea. And that that was purely down to how popular the game had become during an explosion in the 90s. Um, So so for me, like in terms of the, like I say, international competitions, which are what festers and and develops this game and grows it on a global uh, scale, just absolutely second to none. You mentioned the internet, Dave. And it really is the biggest the biggest reason, because even if you weren't able to watch a game, you didn't have to wait for like the next day's newspaper to go and find a score. You could just go online and find a score. And, you know, that made such a difference, especially then as well when we came to things like transfers. Now, I know at that time, like the late 90s, when the Internet was kind of becoming more and more of a thing, it was dial up, so a lot of people that either didn't have it or just couldn't be dealing with it. Um, so a lot of people still use the likes of teletext and CFAX, but it was the internet that really kind of came on and changed things at that at that point. And you know, the popularity of the game just took over the internet as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just hard to 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 do anything but agree. Um, if I think back. It, you know, international tournaments. If I try to come up with a like a top five world, um, not World Cups, uh, international tournaments, that four of them are going to be from the nineties. You know, that those three World Cups, 90, 94, 98, and the ninety six European Championships. It, you know, if I'm going to come up with a top five, the, them four are going to be in it without a doubt. It was just, I, I don't think we'd ever before or ever ever will. You know, certainly not since, and I just can't see it happening again. Where you'd have a run of three consecutive World Cups that were just great in their own right, great for whatever reasons you you wanted to have, they were just phenomenal. It was just everything that Dave spoke about. You know, the the, the football, the different aspects of the football. It was, it was just such a 
such a great time for international football itself in the 90s. It was just, there was something, a certain excitement about it. And we've, I know we've spoken about it a number of times, and certainly on this show it keeps coming up. It's like a recurring theme that international football doesn't feel quite the same now as it did. And it almost feels as though that the 90s, it were just almost like a peak because it wasn't just, you know, one or two really good sides, you know, with, with you know, with great players concentrated between two or three sides, you know, it was, there were so many great players and, and they were spread around. Uh, you could, you know, you could go to sort of seven, eight, nine, ten nations in a, in a tournament who had, a, you know, one of, one of the world's great players playing mm. for them. And it was, and it was just such a joy to watch, you know, some of these players running, you know, like Sahadji and Stoichkov, you know, teams that you weren't used to seeing yeah, doing well. 100%. And, and, and those two, that's it. The Romania kind of, became known to everybody in in 90 but then exploded in 94 and we saw a lot of those Romanian players come into the Premier League that Bulgarian team you've mentioned Andy led by Stoichkov with Ivanovo Ivanov and then different guys um like that was a great great team as well that Sweden team as well that had done pretty well in the 92 European Championships and were great in 94 in the World Cup like just all these different teams that came and just sort of peaked at the same time. And it really did, like... And as you say, I don't think we'll see three three such quality World Cups back-to-back-to-back again. Because if you look at the last four World Cups, three of them have been pretty poor. The last two have been pretty poor. And I thought the 2002 World Cup was the the worst I've seen. Um, I thought 06 was a good World Cup. But three of the last four have been poor for me. Um, I don't think the international... Uh, sorry, the European Championships have been all that good of late. Uh, certainly not I think the it's last marketing, one. Dave, you know, like you're you're highlighting them. I'm going to give you a reason. I think I think it's a lot of it, David, is, is that we've they've also they've also diluted the the talent pool. They've opened it up to too many teams. Like the fact that we now have 24 teams in the European Championships. Like you go back to away to 92, we had eight teams in it. Then we had 16. I thought 16 was just the perfect number for the European Championships. Again, the same with the World Cup. I just think there's too many teams. I think they're allowing too many teams. In. And, and look, I know that it's it's incredible for some of the smaller nations, for these players to get to go and, you know, represent their countries at these major tournaments. And that is fantastic. And, and I, I, I don't want, us to want, want to see us go backwards from that. Because I do think, you know, for guys from countries like Saudi Arabia and things like that. Like, this is the pinnacle of their career. And they're never going to play in Champions League finals or, you know, the top divisions in England or Germany or France or Spain or, or, you know, whatever, or Italy. But for them to get to go and play in major tournaments, that's that's great. And the same with, you know, some of the European countries we saw in the last European Championships. It is great for them to get to go and represent their countries. But it, it does just cause the quality of the football to suffer just a little bit. And as Andy mentioned as well, the, the, the elite teams, we've gone from, you know, you might have had five or six potential winners in the European Championships to now there's really only three maybe that you look at before the tournament and think, yeah, they could win. Now, the last one obviously proved different because nobody thought Portugal would win it and they came from, you know, from uh, came from nowhere really to win it because I think everybody assumed that uh, France or Germany would, would 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 be victorious. But I just I just think overall they've they've just diluted the talent pool 
Um, and they've made a lot of the games in the World Cup and the European Championships just quite boring. Um, and, and not boring in the sense that, oh, there was no goals. Like, you can have a nil-nil that's a great game for a couple of different reasons, you know, end-to-end, or you can have, like, a real a real chess match. But these are just games where one team has no chance, the other team knows they don't have a chance, so they're not really trying all that hard. And you end up with with a lot of sub substandard games. Yeah, I think sometimes it's a case of less is more. Yeah, well, here, look, he's starting to rant on a positive, so let's get him on to a negative quickly, Andy, to <laughs> rescue this situation. Dave, I, I know you're, you're like ourselves. You do enjoy a negative or two, so feel free with your first one. This is a one that people might not agree with. and In fact, I'm pretty sure most people won't agree with it. But I think the formation of the Premier League, I've never really understand understood the point other than to make rich people richer. I think the days of Division 1, Division 2, Division 3, Division 4 was just much simpler, much uh, just a much better way. Um, I think it's all become about money now, and I think the Premier League was, was kind of the catalyst of that. And um, I think in the same way the Champions League, you know, I, I put those two in together. Uh, I don't like the concept of the Champions League. I don't think if you finish fourth, you should be playing in the elite competition now, as a Liverpool fan, we're in the competition this year. We finished fourth last year. The last time we won it in 05, we'd finished fourth the year before. So from that respect, it's great. But again, I just think you're diluting the quality of the tournament. Um, Champions League, for me, winners. Fair enough if you want to accept the second place teams in. But um, I, I don't particularly like that. Uh, I think it was better... Um, with the, the old system of Division 1, 2, 3 and 4, um, when money wasn't as big a factor maybe, and I think the same in the Champions League, I think you've just seen a, a dilution of quality. Well, here I'm going to jump in because I don't know what you thought about it, Dave, but, the, the, you know, and, and look, I, I don't care, but the, the, the English League Cup draw taking place in the Far East like what? Yeah, at like in hell two in the morning about? or yes. something. What is that about? That is, you know, to me, it's an erosion of identity. And yeah, and and really, you know, I know it's the, it's like the third tier of competition. I know that the big boys in the Premier League don't take it that seriously, but it's still the English League Cup. How many how many of those do we have? And we boast about about winning. I can remember whenever it was really a, a cup you wanted to win, and the devaluation of that. You know that's that's more what annoys me about the Premier League uh, being formed. So look, the, that's it. I mean, something needed done. There's no two ways about. Look we at last year's final. Yeah. Look at last year's final. Two mid-table teams. Two mid-table teams in the final. Uh, we've seen Swansea against Bradford in the last couple of years. You know, it's it's great for Swansea to win a major tournament, and it's like it's not a major tournament in the way the Premier League and Champions League, but it's still a major honor. It's not like the Johnston Paint Trophy or any of that. Yeah, kind but the of FA Cup's going the same way. Do you have this erosion? The, the FA Cup is exactly already gone. the same way. And you it's already have, done. Exactly, Andy. United pulled out of that tournament one year to go and play in some stupid French, uh, set of friendlies in Brazil. And you can call it the World Club Cup Championship, whatever wank you want. That is a series of friendlies. The Charity Shield, the European Super Cup, and all that World Club Cup nonsense. They're all just friendly matches. They don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. All they are is a spectacle for rich people to get richer. That's all that is. And 
unfortunately, domestic competition has gone the same way. And the, the Premier League is what started all of this. Because of the money involved in the Premier League, it means that in the early rounds of the Cups, we're seeing a lot of teams rest their best players. You think back to, like, say, the 80s and early 90s, before all, even the, through the 90s, before all this nonsense started, um, you would see a team in the FA Cup, say, uh, I don't know, like a, a, a second division team or third division team, third tier team, getting a home draw against a Premier League team, say like an Oldham drawing Man United at Boundary Park. Like for the Oldham fans, number one, it's a big, big game that they can get excited about. Number two, they're going to get to see the very best players that the English League has to offer come to their stadium. And because it's the Cup and because top-end players are used to certain luxuries and a certain pitch that rolls a certain way, they've always got a chance. And the magic of the Cup was those upsets. Think back of think back to Wrexham beating Arsenal with that Mick, Mickey Thomas um, free kick late on on a horrible, bouncy pitch in Wrexham. And that's the magic of the Cup. Now we see these upsets regularly because the top teams don't send their best players. They need a rest. And why do they need a rest? Because three points on the Saturday in January is now deemed more important than the FA Cup because that three points could be the difference between making... 25 million that year and 28 million that year from your television money or your league position or whatever it is and the cup has been devalued and you know we've seen again like a, a bunch of terrible teams reach the finals of the FA Cup and the League Cup and it's phenomenal for their fans it's a chance to go to Wembley and see their team it's great for the players that might never get the opportunity again like Wigan won the FA Cup and got relegated do you know what I mean? They weren't they weren't weren't good enough to win the FA Cup, but they won it anyway, and they got dumped out of the league. Sorry, I'm going to say it's not just the top teams that rest the players, though. You have teams in the in, you know mid-table Premier League teams, and pe- certainly teams, year. yeah, but certainly teams down the bottom end as well. They rest their players. They'll give up the opportunity to potentially win a trophy because staying in the Premier League and it's having that more. cash cow is more yeah. is worth more to them. It's worth more to the people running that club than it is to win that trophy. I'm not only the Premier League team, so even the Championship. There's mm. teams in the Championship who will rotate and rest players and play a second string in the FA Cup because the Premier League. They want to get to the Premier League. They yeah. want to be part of that cash cow, and that's it. It's uh, it's like this ever decreasing circle that you once you're there, you've got to stay there because exactly. that money you've got to secure it. It's the money, the money, the money, the money. It might come across that I've been that was criticizing Wigan for winning, but I'm not. What I'm saying is they prioritized the FA Cup. They prioritized winning the FA Cup over Everyone staying in the should. Premier League. Everyone should. Absolutely. That's the that's what you should be doing. You go like once in a lifetime opportunity for some players to win an FA Cup. Do you know like if Everton or Stoke or West Ham or Southampton or any of those teams that are sort of mid-level Premier League teams, if they would just take one season of a relegation scrap for the sake of winning the FA Cup, I'm sorry, that's much better than finishing seventh. Much better. 
And you're going to tell me, oh, we get into the Europa League. Fuck the Europa League. It's the biggest pile of unadulterated crap I've ever seen. It's awful. And there's about 4,000 rounds. You've got to play like 93 games to get to the final of the Europa League. It used um, to be a tough competition, though. It, it used to be actually, uh, there was a stage where it was harder to win the Europa, uh, the, sorry, the, U- uh, harder Cup. to win the UEFA Cup yeah. than it was to win the European Well, there's Cup. the other thing as well. Because of the Champions League, the, Euro- the UEFA Cup has been abolished in its old setting to become this Europa League joke. And the Cup Winners' Cup has been done away with. Like, I'm sorry, Tuesday night was UEFA Cup night, Wednesday night was European Cup night, and Thursday night was Cup Winners' Cup night. And that's how it should be. There should be three major European competitions. Oh, if you I'm want first... Cup winners. I'm all for the Cup winners. I thought that yeah. was a great competition. Cup Winners' Cup yeah. was brilliant. It was brilliant. And it should be brought back. Because the, nobody likes the Europa League. The only thing the Europa League has going for it now is that you get a Champions League place. But that's something they've had to bring in purely to get teams to take it seriously. Because no one cared. You didn't have that back when it was the UEFA Cup. It was a major, major tournament that teams wanted to win. And it would often be the catalyst for teams to go and have great success, win the Europa League, also win the UEFA Cup. They go into the following season with that momentum, with that belief, and they make a run at the league title. They win the league title the following year they're in the European Cup and they can have a run. Liverpool, prime example of that, won a UEFA Cup, won the title the next year, and then went on and dominated Europe. So for me, I would prefer to see us revert back to the old way. Even if you're putting the top two teams from the big leagues into the European Cup, you're not generating States. the money, Dave. You're not generating Fuck the money. <laughs> Put third, fourth, and fifth into the UEFA Cup. Have it back over two legs. Forget this league nonsense. Back over two legs and bring back the, the, the Cup Winners' Cup of a Thursday night because it was, it was great. It was absolutely great. And it was one of my first points in the minute will be about the Italian teams. The Italian teams dominating those tournaments um, in the 90s was just was incredible. Well, let's, let's get on to that then, Dave. But your next positive. My next positive um, is actually the Ajax team of the 95 uh, European Cup final. Yes. And <laughs> that team being developed by Louis van Gaal um, and reaching the pinnacle of winning the, Euro- the European Cup. And when you read down the names on that team, Edwin van der Sar went on to become one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Michael Reitziger went on to become one of the best right-backs in the world. Danny Blind, legend. Frank Reichardt, legend. Frank De Boer, known and had a great career at a time, was one of the best centre-backs in the world. Clarence Seedorf, legend, went on and became one of the best midfielders that's ever played the game. Finiti George, bit of an up-and-down career, but a very, very talented guy. Um, Edgar Davids, like, I, I don't think I need to speak about Edgar Davids. Ronald Bohr, another great career. Yari Lipmanen, what a career that guy had. Mark Overmars, one of the best wingers in the world. You look at the bench, Winston Bogart, probably best known for not playing for Chelsea and making loads of money, but a pretty good player. Patrick Clivert and Noanku Khan. Like, and most of those guys came from their academy and were developed together as that team. Now, the hard thing for 
for Ajax is that they lost a lot of those players on Bosman's. They didn't get any money for all the hard work in developing those players. But everyone will always tell you about that incredible Celtic team that won the European Cup. And I think every player came from within like 15 miles of Glasgow or something along those lines. And most of them had come through the Celtic Academy. And people said that had never happened again. Well, it, it kind of did here. Now, not all of them are from, from Holland, but there was three overseas players in that, in that squad is, is what you were allowed at the time. Um, but a lot of those guys are young local Amsterdam guys who went into the IX Academy developed together, played together from when they were 12. And you talk about progression and the right coach. And next thing, they're in the European Cup final, up against arguably the greatest club side in the world at the time, that Milan team that were reigning European Cup champions. And the names in that team, Maldini, Albertini, Costa Curta, Baresi, Donadoni, Desai, Boban, not the attacking options that they had, no Van Basten, no Hullet, etc. But, I mean, that defence, Panucci as well. So, you know, for them to come from playing together as a bunch of academy kids and think back to when Milan were winning European Cups in the late 80s, these guys would have been in the Ajax Academy. And here they are in 95 going toe-to-toe and beating that Milan team. And the following year, they got back to the finals again. And I know they lost to Juventus, but... You know, back-to-back finals, one cup with a, a team crafted in their own academy. Like, that is what everyone has fondled themselves over Barca doing, you know, 15 years later or whatever it was. Louis van Halen, I actually did that in the 90s, you know, and it's often forgotten how great that team was. How great could that have te- that team have been if they'd had the resources to keep them all together? They might have won three or four European Cups. Andy, I think this is our seventh show of this, and I think this is the third or fourth time that this team's coming up, because I brought it up at least twice. Yeah, I, I do recall we, we had the flip side of this, didn't we? Um, was it Frank who was <laughs> disappointed as a Milan fan to to have lost? Because obviously, as Dave mentioned, you know, this was a phenomenal Milan side. But yeah, th- these were just some incredible players. Uh, and it is, I mean, now... You you very rarely see teams just nurture talent and and bring them through their academy into the first team, uh, and you have a team that's almost exclusively a product of your academy, and then to go on and perform at the highest level and succeed, it's it's just such a rarity and phenomenal. And then Some of the lose players them all in there for free as well, Andy. It <laughs> sounds like Manchester United. Yeah, well, that's that's the <laughs> yeah. That I mean, that's just you know a real kick in the balls. Obviously, the whole the way things are contracts and everything else was getting sorted. Nowadays, that that wouldn't be the situation. Obviously, that it wouldn't have been allowed to happen. That that team would have been ripped apart before it even uh, yeah. before it even achieved a, a European Cup success. They'd sadly, because. They'd have been selling those lads. As soon as that team won, because I, I think Seedorf left that summer and I think it was the following summer then that the exodus started. But now in the modern game, like a director of football would have looked at that and thought, right, well, we've got five or six lads out of contract in the next 12 to 24 months. Let's just cash in now. These lads mm-hmm. have just won a European Cup. Let's cash in now. 
like just think of the lost revenue for us. Like, what would Patrick Cliver be worth in the modern game, or yeah. Davids, or Reitziger, or the De Boers? You know, like these would be elite players in any era. Yeah. And uh, for them to have them all and lose them all, I think they got like four million for Seedorf when he went to Sampdoria, and he was probably worth a lot more. Um, but I think he had twelve months left on his contract as well. So, uh, just a, a, an incredible team, and and that was an era of, you know, when European football was really really strong. You had that great Milan team. You got a great Juventus team. Man United were on the rise. They put together a fantastic team. Um, Bayern Munich were very strong. Dortmund became strong then in the next couple of years. Um, obviously, Barcelona, just coming off the back at the end of the Dream Team era, but still very strong. Madrid had that wonderful team where they had Laudrup and Redondo playing in midfield and Hierro at centre-back. So you had an awful lot of really good teams, like teams that if they were in the European Cup now would probably be semi-finalists, you know, or, or, or potentially win the thing. And this Ajax team, like, and just think of that, a team from Holland winning the Champions League. Like, we couldn't even imagine that happening now. No, Porto did it nine years later. Um, but that was kind of a fluke year where most of the big teams had sort of tips because the, the semi-finals, Chelsea were a semi-finalist. I know United, I think United were a semi-finalist. I can't think of Porto, but maybe it was United. But like Monaco as well. Like So there wasn't there wasn't really the elite teams in the semi-finals, let alone the final that year. Whereas Ajax, Ajax beat Milan in the final. Um, and they beat Bayern Munich in the semi-final. So, you know, that was no cakewalk. <laughs> in the era of mega money that we're in now, it, it's just... It is now, sadly, impossible for a team from the Eredivisie to get to the final of the Champions League. It just is yeah. not going to happen because yeah. the rich have got so much richer that it is now, it's, it's almost like a cartel and they, they hoard all the talent together and, and the best you can hope for is something like a Monaco last season breaking through. And as soon as you get the sniff of someone breaking into that group, ramp. Everybody comes in, picks the bones, takes away the best players, and they're, and they're left with scraps, and they've got to start all over again. So it's it's such. I think the the, the money has influenced the game to the point where it, it's it's so difficult to break that control over the the mm. big you know the the mega clubs that we have now, and and it is it's a real shame that you're unlikely to to ever see again a team come together and come to fruition and succeed together in the way that that Ajax team did and and just Wait, to and mention Lippmann as well just I, I loved watching what Lippmann a player. but just to just to, to focus on that Ajax team for a second like they played 11 games to win that European Cup six in the group stage quarterfinal semi-final final 11 games they won seven drew four didn't lose any um, they only conceded four goals in 11 games and they scored 18. So it wasn't like a thing that they scraped their way through and then just hit the play form at the right time. They played, football. they played great football and they beat they beat Milan twice in the group stage that year. So they beat AC Milan, reigning European champions, three times that season. Can you imagine someone beating Real Madrid three times this year? Not a hope. No team will beat Real Madrid three times this year. 
Nobody. Nobody's capable of doing that. Um, and I, like Andy mentioned, it is, it's the rich have gotten richer. You look at last year's Europa League final, Ajax against United. United are a mid-table team in the Premier League. But look at the class difference between them and that Ajax team. Now, I know that Ajax team is very young, a lot of good players, and they've, you know, they've sold David Sanchez to Spurs and whatever. But like the gulf of class in, in that game was staggering, absolutely staggering. Well, listen. Let's let's move back and do another positive because we can. If, if we if we stay on this, we'll stay on it all day. I can talk about that team. I don't there. have any negatives left, so I've got oh. two positives left. Oh well, then what's the next positive? The next positive is an individual player. Now we could talk all day about the players from the nineties, Maldini and you know Baresi, Zidane becoming the superstar, the great Ronaldo, uh, Baggio. One of my one of my two or three favorite players ever, Laudrup Romario. We could talk all day about all of those guys. But for me, as as a fan, first and foremost of English football, because that's where my club play, the guy who defines this era to me is Matt Letizia. Because you, you could look at any Premier League season. If you don't know the Premier League from that era, you look at the Premier League season and look at the tables from that those years. And look at where Southampton finished. And almost every year they were scraping against relegation. And if you didn't know the quality of players, you'd go, oh, well, you know, they must have got lucky a couple of times and they, you know, they had the experience or whatever. But they had some horrendous teams. Like players that had no business in the Premier League. And that man, season after season after season, kept them up. He could have gone to any club he wanted. If he had said he wanted to leave Southampton, they would have sold him because, number one, they would have loved to have gotten the money. Number two, they knew he was better than them and knew he deserved a much grander stage. But he stayed there for his entire career. And, like, he had this... He looked lazy. He looked like a guy that didn't train... But the goals he scored, the goals he created, like you will not find a player from that era with a better highlight reel of goals than Matt Letizia. And I don't care who you mention. If you put every goal that any player from that era scored up side by side by side, Letizia's will stand out. Because while Ronaldo and Baggio and Romario all scored incredible goals, they also scored a lot of tap-ins. This guy either scored penalties or absolute worldies. Free kicks, volleys, chips. Like, this guy's natural talent was absolutely off the chart. And the only reason he is not held in a much higher regard is because he was English. If he had been French or Italian or from a country that appreciates well, he's God nearly given. French. He was nearly French. He is <laughs> exactly he's from Guernsey. But like, if you God given natural footballing ability and a mind that was eons ahead of everybody else on the pitch, this guy, the show that he put on week after week after week, deserves mention because what he did in the nineties was absolutely incredible. He kept them in the Premier League. He kept them relevant. He enabled them to build a new stadium that really 
and truly should not be called St Mary's. It should be called the Matt Letizier Stadium because that club exists today because of him. Because if it wasn't for him, they'd have been rocking through the leagues and they'd have ended up right down the bottom of the football league. This guy was the difference. On his day, Dave, on his day, I appreciate that his form was a bit patchy and that was where he used to run and that was that was the difficulty with Letizia. He didn't do it week on week consistently. Consistency was his problem. But on his day, I would say that Matt Letizia is one of the top 10 players I ever saw in my life. He was unplayable. He had a casual nature to him you know just the way he just the whole body just dropped and and he just looped one of those shots into the top corner i remember it was a 6-1 do you remember whenever united changed from the gray shirts yeah he that game is one like you know you talk about cristiano ronaldo today as the complete athlete matt Letizia was doing things that ronaldo today as the complete athlete could not achieve and oh. and that's why i would have him right up there in my opinion he is one of the, of the best 10 players i have witnessed playing the game and then you go into the other side of the thing for how many years would england not entertain him because he was playing for southampton at the time you know and i know times have changed a wee bit now that he has that. eight england caps is yeah. an absolute fact eight that's why i felt like highlighting it dave because it is it's an absolute disgrace this was a mercurial. Oh, can't say it. You know what I'm talking about. Mercurial talent. That's the very well, word. Put it, <laughs> put it this way: Carlton Palmer, who isn't fit to make Matt Letizia a sandwich, has 18 caps, and Matt Letizia only has eight. That's a disgrace. That is a fa- an institutional failure. And remember, Carlton Palmer was only an international player for two years. So Graham Taylor. Little wonder he failed so spectacularly as England manager made Carlton Palmer a focal point of his international team, while Matt Letizia, who was easily one of the top five Premier League players, actually one of the top five players in the whole of England from 90 to probably about 98 when his, he started, the injury started to have a toll. Like, and he has eight caps. To, to run through his record from 89-90, 20 Four goals in 44 games. This is all competitions. Uh, following season, 23 and 43, 15 and 51, 18 and 44, 25 and 40, 30 and 49, no 10 tap-ins and 43. Either. No tap-ins. No tap-ins. <laughs> and remember, this guy wasn't a striker. Nine games. He wasn't a striker. He played off the striker. He was a creator as well. He probably had 10 plus assists almost every year as well. Uh, 10 and 43. 18, uh, 16 and 38 and 14 and 30 and then the injuries took their toll and he got a little bit old but this guy as a secondary striker a primarily a creative player go and look at Eric Cantona's numbers for the same era Eric Cantona again didn't run a whole lot had a terrible attitude and played the same position wore the same number go and put their numbers side by side and then come back and tell me whose numbers are better I don't even bother it's, it's Latissier Matt Letizia could have been, for a manager willing willing to have the balls that Alex Ferguson had, Matt Letizia could have been a Cantona for any Premier League club. If Liverpool had bought Letizia to play with Fowler, they would have won a Premier League title. If Arsenal had bought Letizia to play with Wright, before Burkamp, obviously, they would have won a Premier League title. If United had bought Letizia instead of Cantona, they would have won Premier League titles. That's how good this guy was. He was capable of matching anyone. And I know you mentioned the consistency, Dave. And yes, 
There was weeks he didn't turn up, but even on the weeks he didn't turn up, he'd still create something or he'd was score. It, was he a victim of the times in that way, Dave? You know what I mean? Because obviously the professionalism and everything has, has reached, you know, when kids today talk to me about, you know, these are athletes now and you can't look at the players in the past and everything. But I think, you, you know, Matt Letizia in today's world, in 2017, you have a young Matt Letizia coming through. He's going to be treated a completely different way. Um, you, you know, the, the set of circumstances... If he, ca- if he came through in a different country, I still think if he came through in England, I still think he'd have problems. Because you even look at Berbatov is probably the closest thing we've seen to Letizia since. And, like, that guy was ridiculously gifted, was an incredible player, and yet you still hear criticism. People still slag off. He didn't run enough. The fuck's he want to run for? Look what he can do with a football. Give him the ball, get out of the way, and go and be where you're meant to be. You run, let him do stuff. You know, and Letizia was the same. Put runners around him, let him do his thing. I've got to say, I think Letizia, the reason that Letizia didn't have an international career was because he's English. If he'd have been, well, most international teams would have simply just built their team around him. But you have this kind of, it's, I don't know whether you call it an English disease or what, but yeah. this kind of outlook oh, to a player who's, yeah, who's, who's oh, talented. Yeah, who's got the talent, but doesn't necessarily produce the work rate and the effort and the endeavour, you know, and, and the crunching tackles and, and all the rest of it. It's look at Glenn Hoddle, you yeah. know, the, the talent of that guy who didn't have the career, the international career he should have had because of the way it's that sort of English mentality of how a team should function. And it's, you take them, you take them and put them into like the French team or the Spanish team or Italian team. And they'd say, you know what? We don't need you to run around. We don't need you to do this and work this and do this and run the channels and do that. We've got other guys who'll do that. What they'll do is they'll do all the work. They'll provide you with a ball. You make something happen. Yeah. I mean, Glenn Hoddle has like 52 or 53 England caps. So between him and Letizia, they have, say, 60, 61 caps. Phil Neville has nearly 60 caps for England. Good grief. Phil Neville has nearly 60 caps. And... On the greatest day of his life, Phil Neville is an average player. But then Phil Neville was... There was a stage, Dave, as well. Um, Letizia and Hoddle has been mentioned as well, and both suffered from this. At the yeah. time, Southampton and Tottenham were not the fashionable clubs. Back then, the, the, you know, the, the England players tended to come. For example, I always considered Joe Corrigan at City a better keeper than Ray Clements at Liverpool. But Ray Clements was in the winning team, so he always got the nod. Back in the day, it yeah. was all about fashionable clubs as well. That was a part of it. It's gone exactly. a wee bit today. But remember this. Uh, Phil Neville won 52 England caps at Manchester United. 52 England caps. Phil Neville was never first choice at Man United. In his entire time there, he was never first choice. And yet somehow he won over 50 international caps. Glenn Hoddle and Matt Letizia are two of the five or six greatest talents England has ever produced, and they have barely more caps combined than Phil Neville. I'm sorry, something is fundamentally wrong with English football and has been since the 70s. I think it rolls back to the FA, Andy, on that one. You, you know what I mean? And there was a partisan attitude towards selections. And, and, you know, players were never picked on form. They were picked on reputation, and they were also picked on reputation of their clubs. I think it still exists to a degree in England, but I think. You know, the, the modern era, it has lessened a little bit. 
Yeah. I don't think it has because Chris Smalling has 31 England caps and he's been a regular for United maybe one season in his entire career. And he's still in yeah. the England squad. And he's not. He sits on the United bench, he's still in the England squad. We've seen it year after year after year. Players who are not first choice for the club teams getting in the England squad because they're at these bigger clubs. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. Just one on... On Letizia before <laughs> danger this going into a massive negative. I, I mean, I I think back to the obvious ones are them two goals he scored in that match against New, uh, Newcastle. Uh, just on a, on the, a Monday the, night. Yeah, it just you know volleying it over players, you know playing keepy uppies around the team and smashing it in. It's just r- ridiculous. And you think nowadays, you know, something like that happens. And we would have endless reels, and it's on twenty four seven on Sky Sports News, and you know we we have it repeated back with Gary Neville screaming and shouting as it goes in, you know, and it's that that's the thing, it's 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 quickly forgotten that you know that there's some great plays around now, yes, there is, but you know you go back twenty thirty plus years, and he's had some phenomenally talented players, and just because. It's not in the psyche, you know, and, and rammed in your throats so much that time as it is now. You know, it, it doesn't mean they weren't as great. Uh, and some of them goals, I, it, there was one he scored against Blackburn. I think he dribbled around about three or four players and then chipped Tim Flowers from something like 30 yards. Yeah. And it was just incredible, incredible. Here's the question for you both. You know the, the Wayne Rooney overhead shin against Man City? Yes. Yeah, how many how many times have you guys seen that goal repeated on too TV? Too many, couple too of many. thousand probably, couple yeah. of thousand. Wait, 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 oh, too yeah. many. It, it's Matt like, Letizia probably scored forty goals better than that in his career, Dave. And you he, don't you don't see them. Had he been born in South America, the whole world mm. would know who he is today. Yeah. He would be on. He, he would still be very much in the memory. I, I, I maintain that because if if he started out down here, oh God, you know, and and just that that. The yeah. f- they love the flair down here. They love to just let a player like that just go his own way. Uh, yeah, look but, at Raquel May. Look, look at the yeah. look at the regard Raquel May is held in. And oh, Raquel May is one of my favourite players. He wasn't as good as Letizia. For those who don't don't know Letizia, go on YouTube and just watch his goals. There's also, there's a video on YouTube of of Carlton Palmer sharing his thoughts on Letizia. He said he was unfit and lacked ambition. Carlton, if you ever somehow hear this, go fuck yourself. You, <laughs> you were shit. You were shit. Right, moving on. <laughs> That's Carlton pulled out. <laughs> so, could that be considered a negative or should we just move on to another positive? <laughs> right, Dave, give us your next positive negative rant. <laughs> right, so this is my this is my last positive. Um and it's just it's Italian football from the nineties. Too many great teams to name, but just to run through them: uh, Milan, the Capello Milan, incredible. Lippi's Juve, unbelievably good. Um, Sampdoria, their title-winning team, yeah, fantastic. Lombardo phenomenal. and Man- Man- Mancini, Viali, Viali. God, fantastic. Just, just a phenomenal team. Lazio, the Lazio team that developed at the end of that decade were great. Uh, some fantastic Fiorentina teams in that era with Badastuta and Rui Costa. Um, and of course, the Parma team, 
with Turam, Cannavaro, you know, before that, and uh, Buffon. Before that, they had Zola, Aspria, and uh, and Thomas Brolin. And they won multiple European trophies in that era. And if you look at the dominance of Italian clubs in that era, in European uh, European championships or European uh, competitions, they were just absolutely second to none. They were in finals almost every year. Uh, they were winning competitions almost every year. I mean, they only won two European Cups in the 90s, but they had five losing finalists in the 90s. So 10 finals, seven times there was an Italian team uh, in, in those finals. That's like that's dominance. That's not something you're going to um, to be seeing anytime soon. Other than at the moment, it's, you know, it's the dominance of Real and Barca and Atletico Madrid. But um, it's, it's different because it's only a couple of teams. But with, again, with, with Milan or with, with Italy, Three um, three UEFA Cup wins in that era in the nineties and a losing finalist and uh, in the sorry that's the Cup Winners Cup two two winning sorry three winning teams and a losing finalist and in the UEFA Cup like you want to talk dominance they won it in ninety ninety one ninety three ninety four ninety six ninety eight and ninety nine they had losing finalists. In one, two, three, four, five of those years, in five five years as well, a couple of them were Italian teams against Italian teams. But the absolute dominance of Italian teams, the quality of that league, that was by far the best league in the world at the time. From 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 eighty six to oh six, Serie A was the best league in the world, and nothing comes close. Calcio Poli ruined it all. Um, who knew you couldn't bribe referees? Um, but just the players we could talk about, Baggio, Maldini, Baresi, we've mentioned the likes of George Weah, the emergence of the likes of Nedved, um, Del Piero, just Del Piero Veron in that 90s era, um, Mancini, you mentioned Dave, Viali, just Zola, like the, the tail end of Maradona. Like you look back, Ravinelli, like, you know, scores the winning goal in the European Cup final, and then he parks up at Middlesbrough a couple of months I'm later. By the Riverside, eh? <laughs> you know, like just so many wonderful Daniel Fonseca, Alvaro Recoba. You know, you could look back at any of those, any of those Italian seasons in the nineties, and you just lose yourself going over players and games and teams and seasons and whatever. Just for me, the pinnacle that the game has ever reached um, was was that era of Italian football, and particularly for me, the one team that always that I always loved is is that Milan team um, managed by Capello, because now especially it, the whole game is completely biased towards attacking players and. Even fans' mentality is all about goals, goals, goals. It's all just nonsense. Like Milan won it, won the title. I think they scored about thirty-six goals, and they won the title because they conceded like twelve. Um, they put emphasis on defense, hard work, teamwork, and taking your chances. And you know, Van Basten, 
Hullet. These guys were just on a different level to what we see now. And like, Even Gas going there at Napoli in his time Gaza, as yeah. well, you know, like, it, and, and he did incredible. some Incredible, and, and that changed, exactly, that changed Italian football. That brought Italian football into the English home as well, remember, because Gazetta Football Italian, the big match would be on. So, you know, uh, for me, I don't think we'll ever see a league as strong as Serie A was in, in that time. Uh, I don't think we'll see that again because even the Premier League having all the money now, you wouldn't back any Premier League team to go and win the Bundesliga. You wouldn't back them to go and win La Liga. But if you put Capello's Milan or Lippi's Juve into any league in the world at the time, they would have won it and they would have won it comfortably. You know, and then the tactical battles, you know. And build on defence as well, David, and, and oh, something that's lacking today. It's something that's just been forgotten about. Yeah, and, and you know, building teams the right way, building from the back. And, like, I, I just remember watching Juve against Milan in those eight years and the camera pan to the touchline and you'd have, you know, Don Fabio, you know, in his, with his glasses and his, his perfect suit and, and it panned slightly down and Marcello Lippi standing there, perfect suit, glasses, the cigar, just, you know, chess masters, just moving people around. Now you see managers sitting in the dugout or you see them standing up and screaming. These guys were stood stoic watching the game, making the most subtle alterations and winning games and winning trophies and dominating and... For me, Italian football in the 90s was just... It was just what football should be. Dave, what what do you think that was really... What really set them apart then from the rest of Europe? You know, you talked about that European dominance. What what do you think in particular really sort of set them apart? Was it it that tactics? Was it that defensive ability then? They were ahead of the curve. They were ahead of the curve in terms of of tactics. In in terms of player development, um, they were ahead of the curve... Uh, in terms of nutrition, things like that, training schedules, preparation, scouting, eons ahead, scouting-wise, eons ahead in terms of transfers and the ability to get things done. Remember, the, the, the whole director football concept really comes from Italy. Um, they were the ones who realized that it's better for the coach to just coach and let someone else do the, you know, the other stuff. Let them focus on the team. Let him spend all his time focused on the team and focused on improving the players he has. Let someone else worry about, you know, what the academy is doing. Let someone else worry about how we get new players in or who's watching these new players that we might want. Um, so for me, they were just ahead of the curve. They just, I think they borrowed heavily from American sport, uh, baseball, basketball, and NFL, um, in terms of that structure, um, you know, not having the coach realizing that the, the whole club shouldn't revolve around the manager, that the manager is just a cog in a wheel. And, you know, look at that Milan team, Saki. That Saki Milan team, many people will say it's the greatest team ever. You take any team, look at Barcelona. Um, you took Pep out of that team and they, they had a, a, a dip. And um, Milan didn't have that. Capello took over from Lippi and arguably they got better. Um you know, went on and dominated the that dream team of Barca in the European Cup final without Franco Baresi, without Marco van Basten, without Costa Curta. You take the three, you take the 
like three of the greatest players ever out of any team. Imagine take Messi, Iniesta, and Puyol out of that Barca team that was so great. What would they have been? They certainly wouldn't have wouldn't have won a European Cup, but Milan did because they prepared well, they trained their players properly, they had a tactical plan, they had a tactical genius on the sideline who stuck to his plan and made the alterations that he knew he needed to make and was willing to make them. Too often we see managers giving it 10 minutes. Give it 10 minutes. No, make the change. <laughs> it was a, certainly it was a defining era for football and Italian football really defined the the game of football and like you say you know that they're the nutrition and everything and uh yeah just some incredible incredible teams and some incredible players so uh, we know you're running tight on time dave so yeah yeah, before but before you go we always ask a guest uh if they've got a piece of music that takes them back to uh one particular moment so uh, what have you got for us wonderwall is probably my the song that reminds me most of of the that of the nineties, um, a lot of it is just brings me back to childhood memories of, you know, been out playing football with my mates or playing rugby or whatever, and you know, always have the debate of Oasis or Blur, and you know, we weren't idiots, so we knew it was Oasis, um, but you'd always get the one one or two fools. But it just brings you know, summertime and the, just the memories of, of, of hanging around my mates and. One of whom, you know, as some people might know, passed away a couple of years ago. And it just always kind of brings you back to remembering him fighting his corner and claiming that Ash were a band to be considered um, in the whole Oasis uh, era. But uh, yeah, Wonderwall is probably the song I'd pick. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dave. We will uh, we will leave you all with that, with Wonderwall. Uh, it's been a hell of a discussion. 90s football, the ups, the downs, absolutely tremendous. And I don't doubt we will uh, revisit it again at some stage because it's such a popular topic. But that's it from this edition of In My Life. And we'll be back again next week. Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you got to do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. Backbeat, the word is on the street that the fire in your heart is out. I'm sure you've heard it all before, but you never really had a doubt. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. But they'll never
way back to you By now you should have somehow realized what you're not to do I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now